being live. So we're we must be live on yeah we're live on Sermon Audio, and we're live on Facebook and live on our own uh, site on the live page. Okay, I'm waiting for Ready the, to play. the, the oh, yes. thumb that tells me that I can do something. And that's not your thumb. Okay, there is the important thumb. Are you, you, do I have a confirming thumb, Dave? Are you yes. ready to go? Okay. Yes, we're good. I take the glasses off because I can't read with a wand. And okay, so off we are, right? I'm going to start out. You tell me you're ready, Dave? Yes, sir. Okay, so off we are. Okay. I'm going to start out with a couple of announcements. This one is probably my favorite of all time. And it's incredibly important, actually. Mond wins. I don't know if you know what Mond is, but Mond is uh, uh, modified Newtonian dynamics. We have a, a web telescope now. Isn't that fantastic? And the Webb Telescope decided that it would go look for galaxies. And guess what it found? Oh, that's right. It found galaxies. And they thought the galaxies, of course, would comply. They would be exactly what they thought would occur with dark matter being their theory that they love so much. But the Webb Telescope did not do that. <laughs> Instead, it said these galaxies are huge. They're much bigger than they should be if there's such a thing as dark matter. And, of course, there's not such a thing as dark matter. It's just some fudge factor that they conceived a few years ago, probably 25, 30 years by now. My lifetime, for sure. So the Webb Telescope sees galaxies that are too big to exist if dark matter was, was true, if dark matter existed. So dark matter doesn't exist, and that's fantastic. And guess what predicted that these big, huge galaxies would be out there? That's right, modified Newtonian dynamics. So, who was right again? Isaac Newton. Who's wrong again? Albert Einstein. How many times are you going to let this fight go on? He should have stopped it for cuts a long time ago. Einstein's been knocked down 15 times. He can't get up anymore. But anyhow, it's very, very exciting. I think, and we'll have to, obviously I covered Mond a few uh, months ago, and maybe years ago, and now it's time to do it again, much to the delight of nobody. But we will do it. I got this uh, that came through. It says, anything less than immortality is a complete waste of time, which I thought was brilliant. That's Bill the Cow sent me that. And over here, I got this from somebody in Kyleen, Texas. I don't know who it is. So there's lots of people I don't know, obviously. It says, pushing back the frontiers of biblical illiteracy, which has always been the motto of Cliffside. So that's pretty cool. So thank you guys for that. But what has happened is the Webb Telescope began to see galaxies exactly as it's designed to do, and those galaxies were huge and much bigger than they were supposed to be if dark matter exists. And dark matter does not exist, as I said earlier, but uh, they don't care about that very often. But the, what, uh, the, only, the only structure that has predicted that the galaxies that would be found or discovered would have this kind of size to them was modified Newtonian dynamics. So uh, it wins again. There is no dark matter. Their, their ideas about black holes and dark energy and all of these things, of course, are very difficult to validate. But at least for now, dark matter has been falsified. And what has been supported was the Mond the mon position with regard to gravitational phenomena. Now, I'll do more of that as time goes on. i just rush through it right now. But there are implications. If there's no dark matter, what is the dark matter implications now? And that's a very powerful theological, philosophical issue. And they, everybody knows that except 
most people. How about that? Okay, here we are, March the 5th, 2023, lecture discussion number 193 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Job, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Genesis 15. I've got an atypical plan for today, and that's to revisit some of lecture 192. A lot of times I, I don't always do this, but I, I'm doing it again today, at least in the introductory phase of this particular lecture. And it's true that I have a chess format. People tell me all the time, you have a chess format. I absolutely do. I have an opening, and then I have a middle game, and then I have an end game in every lecture. That's my structure. At least that's the, that's the intention. That's the policy. That's how I begin to think when I put one of these things together. And it, as you know, it takes me a long time to write all of this. And, uh, and, and uh, again, I have a, an intention, but to quote Mike Tyson, everybody has intention until they're hit in the mouth. So uh, I get hit in the mouth quite a bit, and off I go. And where I'm found, no one really knows. And so I've been known to flail away, and I've been swinging wildly for 15 pages before before I regain my uh, stability, my balance, and yes, I'm aware that half of the Internet audience has just screamed out, he has stability? And when did that happen? And, and I'm going to defend my psychological solvency uh, to those who have predestined their assessment and uh, because I know that it would be impracticable to do otherwise, and I have decided that it would be win million that only makes sense if you know Don Quixote, right? Is windmillion a word? It ought to be a word, don't you think? It makes a lot of sense. And so I declare it a word. It, it, it now is a word. But uh, speaking of stability and balance in Lecture 192, I departed from the contextual path by raising the four fundamental forces, because there are four fundamental forces or constants. Most or everyone still conscious at that juncture assumed it was merely another random, whimsical meandering, but not so. I really had a plan, really a point, yay a point. And that was to familiarize the steadfast in the gallery with the necessary poisons or the risk-benefit ratio of medicine. Because if you take a lot of medicines, you're going to have a risk-benefit. You can see all of the disclaimers that go for these drugs that are advertised on television. Death, more death, lots of death, vomiting, and then death. Yeah. But take the medicine. And look how happy the people are that have taken the medicine that are all 25 years old. Okay. You're going to discover, if you start getting into these kinds of subjects, a wealth of information referencing the force constants with respect to their fine-tuning. And Most of you. And, and I have doubled the size of the audience here at Cliffside. It's amazing. So I'm assuming that statistically that somebody understands the fine-tuning argument. And if you don't, well, today you're going to be really bored. They, uh, in other words, there's a bunch of material out there with respect to the fine-tuning of the four fundamental constants, or all of the constants, and there are upwards of 20 of them now, maybe more. And the same is true of the necessary poisons. What do I mean by necessary poison? Well, you should know, and, and most people who deal with animals know, water is a poison. And of course, if you dive into it and you have no flotation systems backing you up, it is obviously a poison. Water intoxication will strip the body of sodium, and you'll find dogs that will drink themselves literally to the point of death. Sodium is an electrolyte, and it's a cardiological necessity. And too much sodium, or what's called high blood sodium, it's, 
it's, if not fatal, it's going to cause tremendous arrhythmia and tachycardia and all kinds of contractual issues with regard to your heart. Uh, and so sodium, as much as we love it, is a necessary poison. Because you have to have calcium, magnesium, sodium, and potassium, and they have to be perfectly balanced or you will end up like me, where you have an EKG machine over here and an oximeter on your hand all the time, and you have a watch all night long to see what your heart rate is because your sodium or your potassium, in my case, it was probably all four. I've had too much contractual calcium, not enough sodium, or I'm sorry, too much sodium, not enough magnesium, and my potassium was probably low. And here I have this now dysfunction in my heart that I required surgery. As you know, most of you know, arsenic is present in every living thing. It's it's in the food, it's in the water, it's unavoidable. Uh, you're going to eat or ingest arsenic every single day. Again, the issue with arsenic is the level of arsenic or the balance of arsenic. Now I'm going to give you some impossibles. If gravity was 5% stronger, life would be impossible. You couldn't walk, you couldn't move. If the strong nuclear force was 1% stronger, or weaker, life would be impossible. If the weak nuclear force was stronger, life would be impossible. If the electromagnetic force was, was slightly weaker, stars would burn out, slightly stronger, everything would be frozen, life would be impossible. If we had an oxy- if the oxygen level of the atmosphere was greater than it is, the water would become hydrogen peroxide. Everything would, would burn, everything else would burn, we'd have combustion dominating the earth. It's one huge ball of fire. The point is, yay a point, though it's still the same point, so I have to retract the yay a point for those keeping score. There is this incredible fine-tuning referred to as the fine-tuning argument for the existence of God. It's been in philosophy for a long time. And because I am horrifically weird or eccentric, as is evident to all who have ventured into my sphere of influence here, Naturally, I have devoted many hours to the evolutionary atheist counter against the fine-tuned argument for the existence of God. So, in other words, what I do, it's usually how I research everything that I do, all the controversies, especially the theological ones, because that's what I'm now focusing on. But the scientific, the philosophical, I'm even going to research trumpet mechanics or trumpet physics, baseball swing physics, and I'm going to find out what the opposite view of my view is. In other words, I want to know why everybody is wrong but me. It's very important. I'm only slightly joking there. Most people say, see, yeah, we always knew he was just like that. So there's two, I can go all, I can go on trumpet mechanics all day long until the place where people just exhaust themselves and drown in their own drool. I can do it for hours and hours and hours, the baseball swing physics as such as well. And again, much to the dismay of everybody who's ever listened to me. Anyway, primarily the opposition to the balanced condition or the fine-tuned argument, right, is the weak anthropic principle. So that's what we call the WAP, like WAP yourself upside the head, which they ought to do to themselves, but they don't. So we have what's called the weak anthropic principle. And that proposes that because we are aware of only carbon-based life, we are carbon-based systems, right? We understand that. I hope we all do. We are carbon-based life. Because we are aware that we are carbon-based life, that does not exclude non-carbon-based life. For example, they're going to say, well, what if we were silicon-based instead of carbon-based? 
or perhaps ammonia-based, or some kind of other hypothetical biochemistry. And you feel free to consider all the hypothetical biochemistries, but we are carbon-based. And if we assume sentience to all these other biochemistries, all life, they will say to us, they will argue to us, who have a fine-tuned position, they will say that all life would eventually ask the exact same fine-tuned question. Uh, hopefully that's making some sense to you. That being, why is the universe so unconditionally adapted and designed for my, for example, ammonia-based existence? And therefore, the proponents of the WAP principle, or the weak anthropic principle, they claim that this fine-tuning question is now invalidated. Because our perspective is, is we don't have any other perspective except a carbon-based perspective. And what if there's a life that is not carbon-based? They think that they say that inviolates. I'm sorry, invalidates the fine-tuning supposition. And so their answer is to replace fine-tuning with the presumption that, that the explosion of life is not by design, because naturally those of us who have sentience will assume that everything is designed for us, irrespective, right? And so there is no explosion of life by design. And of course they have this disclaimer, pending contravening evidences that undermine or supplant the fine-tuning argument otherwise. And they, they occur that no evidences have ever been given that, uh, that uh, supports fine-tuning with respect to, uh, to, the, to the explosion of life by design. And they assist that there's no evidences that have, that have been given. And, uh, of course, we have Romans 9, 1, 19 through 20. So let me read Romans 1, 19 through 20 really fast. For since the creation, I'll start at 1, 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes have been clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, because his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So the weak anthropic principle says no evidence has ever been given for the existence of a designer or a creator or an intelligent mind. Intelligent design. And the Bible absolutely says that is not true. And so now, what is the rebuttal to generally default the weak anthropic principle? And let me repeat it again to pound it in here. There's... There is no surprise, they will say to you, or awe that is justified until overwhelming incontrovertible data is confirmed for human and animal existence proving intelligent life is the source. I'm sorry, intelligent mind is the source, or consciousness is the source of life. And so what is the re response to that? Well, the response to that is the John Leslie William Lane Craig firing squad scenario which goes something along these lines. Okay, I'm predicting that at least one person in the doubled crowd has heard of the firing squad scenario. Has anybody ever heard of it? I'm doomed. I'm, okay, not quite. Here is the scenario. If you haven't heard of it, now you have. Every time you walk, walk up against WAP, you can WAP them back with the firing squad scenario. 
let's assume that a firing squad of a highly, 100 highly trained marksmen has been assembled to execute a lone condemned man. All 100 of these highly skilled marksmen, riflemen, are instructed to aim at the heart of the ill-fated principal, or prisoner. All 100 of them. Now, using your ability of imagination, imagination being a mental property associated intimately with free will. Note my inability to refrain from inserting commentary into this particular aspect here. I got to know where did imagination come from? How do you have it? What do you use it for? How powerful is it? What does it prove? Imagination. I'll give you a two-word answer. It proves free will. Anyway, imagine, using your capacity to imagine, which is fantastic, that capability, that you are the intended object of this execution. It's your heart that is the target of 100 bullets. And also using your power of imagination, imagination being an incredible human faculty. Oh, I should ask this. We, we all have dogs, or have had dogs. Do dogs dream? Oh, yeah, they do. Uh, ima- do they imagine that they're chasing rabbits or cats? Probably. Is their imagining so realistic that they bark in their sleep? Oh, they absolutely do that, right? Uh, the obvious answer is obvious. They can imagine. Anyway, uh, as you can tell, I have no resistance uh, to the urge uh, to divert into anxiety subject matter. Where was I? You are the blindfolded fatality. And you hear, you hear the command to aim and fire. You also hear the deafening report of the 100 rifles. But now, you somehow are not killed. And you take off the blindfold and you are aware that you are still alive. What do you conclude? What is the explanation? Did all 100 bullets fired by skilled riflemen all miss? Is that your conclusion? Or were all the marksmen directed to intentionally miss their shots? Which is the more Occam's razor plausibility there? What fits the evidence the best and has the simplest uh, conclusion. Can we agree? And probably not because this is the Cliff City and audience after all. So we're not going to agree very often here, which is great. But let's pretend we can agree. Would we all concede that 100 bullets aimed at the heart from a short distance missing their intended target is highly improbable? And quantum Tunneling, of course, if you've been here for any length of time, you'll know that I keep pounding away that there's no zero probabilities in quantum tunneling. And so, we have no zero probabilities here with regard to all of them missing. But they all missed, and that's highly mathematically difficult. If not approaching uh, uh, impossibility. Thus, we're going to have to have an explanation here. It's necessary. If we conclude that all 100 of the shooters failed, then intentionality rises to the forefront, does it not? 
That would be the most likely. They intended to miss for one reason or another. So intentionality now is on the table. In other words, this unworkable, unfeasible occurrence must be intentionally designed. Somebody had to design it. It is not resulting from preposterous mathematical coincidence or happenstance. That can't be it. But must instead be the product of an intelligence. Someone's intelligence. Is it possible that all 100 marksmen decided apart from one another to miss on purpose? What could cause that scenario? Imagine, for example, they're shooting somebody that they know, all 100, and they're shooting someone that they believe is innocent. They're shooting someone that they believe does not deserve to be murdered. All 100. Is that possible? Is that more possible than they would all have missed? To repeat the explanations, there are three, actually, that are mostly done in the firing squad scenario. All of them missed because of malfunction or incompetence. or they were ordered to miss or fire blanks, which would explain why you heard the report, right? Okay, those are two. Or number three, and this is the explanation that the atheists always exclude uh, and is never debated. And an intelligence supernaturally redirected, interceded and redirected the bullets to allow for life. Now you understand why this scenario is used against the weak anthropic uh, So hopefully everyone is able to assign the firing squad debate to the fine-tuning balance in the creation. Because what does the fine-tuning say? Looking at all of the improbabilities, almost impossibilities, we have life. And the only way we can have life with all of this mathematically ridiculous positioning, this fantastic fine-tuning to make life possible, The only thing that resolves that is the intercession of an intelligence. Now, my plan for today was to introduce the weak anthropic principle, and that's and the firing squad response. That was my whole plan. So I got it started. Did I get anywhere close to finishing it? Oh no, there's miles to go. You'll end up reading the Stanford Philosophical Library at some point. So we'll get back to the firing squad response and the weak anthropic principle as we progress. Uh, the one one of us are going to need somebody's going to need to get a sundial and stakes in the ground to measure our progress because it's going to be really slow. Snails and turtles they mock cliffside as we know, and they disappear over the horizon, leaving us far behind. That's just how the race is going. <laughs> My diabolical plan will be to eventually delve into the nuances of this argument because there are many of them. Uh, one of them being a priori. Uh, probability distribution. That's just an example. Is the universe's purpose to sustain life? If it is, what are the implications? And this uh, this question that I just asked means that we have to revisit uh, Enrico Fermi, a brilliant physicist who developed a nuclear reactor. And this is called Fermi's Paradox. How many stars are there in the created created universe? Do you know? Do you know? Do you know? There are trillions of stars. How many galaxies? There are billions of galaxies. Trillions and billions. 
with the billions if not trillions of stars and planets, how many of those stars are planets? Of course, not the stars, but how many of those solar systems are habitable? How many would be habitable out of trillions and trillions? And the atheists would argue for a high number, especially because he, he considers that he has this idea called the multiverse system. So there's multi-universes of different dimensions. So he takes the trillions and the billions and he expounds it into numbers that are unimaginable. Use your phones. For me, suggested that the fact that there is no evidence whatsoever that life exists anywhere else except on Earth, he suggested that that fact, that truth, had immediate implications and therefore grave consequences to evolutionary atheism. Life only on Earth resolves to intelligent intervention is just too much improbability, like the firing squad. And, and that's going to cause uh, the many, much to the weeping, screaming dismay of the WAP proponents. There's no evidence that there's life anywhere except here. And if you study history at all, that made people, the philosophers of the ancient times, suggest that, well, this must be the center of the universe. We had what's called geocentricity versus heliocentricity. Had they read the fact that the, that the sun is, a, is the greater light, and the, and the greater light is, is Christ as a symbol, then they would have recognized that heliocentricity is more compliant with Scripture. But that, enough of that. But back to today's plan, which was to ask our rigid, absolute Calvinist an easy question, an elementary question. If you believe the creation, the 20 physical constants that are absolutely necessary, absolutely vital for life, and you believe, if you believe that they are there and they are in balance and they are fine-tuned, thus creating a life-sustaining condition, then why would you advocate for the impossibility that God has likewise fine-tuned or balanced man's free will and his own omniscience. If he has fine-tuned the entire creation in order to have life in one place, can he solve this supposed conflict, paradox, between his omniscience, his sovereignty, and our free will? For that matter, we have angelic free will, we have animal free will, to rephrase this a bit, is all free will balanced with God's free will? Yes or no? If you believe God fine-tuned his creation, then you have unknowingly conceded he balanced free will with his will. You should know why. That is true. Now, to sort of quote Edgar Andrews, who I just absolutely adore, the 20 or more discovered physical constants, the laws of God, which are ubiquitous throughout the entire universe. All of the laws of God, the, the fine-tuned constants, all of those physical laws are ubiquitous in all of the universe. And they're all interventional. They all declare evidence of a supernatural intelligence, a mind who governs and responds to firing squads. Every single one of those constants do that. And now, Edgar Andrews, to be fair, did not say any of that, but I read his book. I handed his book out, as you know. He said things that I believe uh, would adhere to my corruption of what I said he said. And I hope that that's true, and he should call me if it's not. Dr. Andrews, if you disagree with my, with my assessment of your position. He is, you have called him, is that correct? 
Mr. Day? Did you call? You know, you did you send him email? Oh, you spoke to him on Facebook, which is really not speaking to him. No, no, it's some kind of fake speaking. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I, I would like a phone call, Doctor Andrews. I think I single-handedly have sold at least a hundred of your books. That should account for something. Okay, where are we now? Only the shadow knows. Maybe who is the shadow? How does he know? What you die? What have you decided? The shadow. If the shadow is the only one that knows, then who is that? Okay. This is probably now a proper place to re-enter into the mind-brain problem or the body-soul. And both are legitimate portraitures of a condition that philosophers and theologians and physicists have fought over for centuries. And so today we're going to go with Plato and Aristotle and Bonaventure and Descartes, to name a few, and obviously Darwin. We're going to get into the body-soul again. Again. I keep doing it. Why am I doing it this time? Because the debate has been, does human beings, do animals, do angels have free will? And the debate is, one side, absolutely no, they do not. And the other side says, absolutely, yes, they do. So, how do you engage that situation and which position do you have? And so, back to the body and the soul again. With few exceptions, everyone who is engaged in this disputation has recognized the human body or the animalic body as something profoundly interesting, that it is divisible. In other words, your body, my body, everybody's body, including animals' body, is divisible. The, physic the physicalists would not say divisible, they would say reducible. They would say this is reductionism. To rephrase, rephrase, sorry, I've got to get something to drink now. I'm starting to spit. Which is why you have to sit as far away from me as possible. In this case, I can't reach 30 feet, so you're all safe for now. Okay. Rephrase the matter, this contentious matter. The body can be reduced. I can take a body especially of the butchers, for example, think of the meat processing situation. The body can be reduced, it can be cleaved into smaller pieces, cut into pieces, it's divisible, it can be reduced in size, it can be separated. And even if I have done that, the material of that, of the smaller pieces, remain equal to the original substance. So the DNA of the small piece will be the same as the DNA of the large Totality. The reductionist process did not alter the material. It just merely demonstrated that the body material is subject to divisibility. That is a very important piece of information for the Calvinists to have. The hyper-Calvinists. I should be kind to the Calvinists. There are some that have a modicum of, how do I put it, of consideration for the free will of mankind. Therefore, the body, the, the body material subject to divisibility, the body is not essential. The fact that you can divide the body means it is not essential. In the sense that our existence is essential. And our existence cannot be divided. Genesis 2-7. The breath of the spirit of life is the indispensable, the critical component, the essential component to your personage. You do not, you are not the body, I've said that thousands of times, 
you are the consciousness, the mind, the soul. You have a consciousness, a mind, a soul that has access to a body. And that body is divisible. Because it's divisible, it's not essential. What's essential is the non-divisible part or substance. And the obvious questions now become obvious again. Always, can existence be divided or reduced? Existence is beingness. Can you divide beingness? And it's never subject to reduction or divisibility. So no, the answer no. And for those who deny Genesis 2-7, where God breathes in his breath of the spirit of life into the body that he has made, that is there waiting for his breath to, to animate the body, that obviously the breath animates the body and manifests the mind that way. And for those who deny Genesis 2-7, those who proclaim that nothingness is the eventuality of the death of the body, they find themselves arguing that the body is that which provides beingness and identity, and that's, of course, called the emergentism position, that the body emerges the consciousness. How can physical matter, though, contribute, produce a substance that cannot be divided and has zero physical characteristics? Because consciousness, your mind, your soul, let's just reduce that to mind and soul. I shouldn't have said reduce. Let's eliminate. Your consciousness has zero physical characteristics. None. The body is particle. The brain is particle. They're dissectable. The body is a non-physical entity that does not display... I'm sorry. The consciousness is a non-physical entity that does not displace or fill space. It does not expel other materials. Your consciousness cannot remove my consciousness from space. The brain is particle. It's dissectable. The consciousness, the mind... The spirit, the soul, is diametrically in opposition. It cannot be decreased. And that's a profound truth. Obviously, then, all beings with the Genesis 2-7 breath of the spirit of life, again, that's the nefesh, the ruach, hayah, they're endowed with two properties, two substances. One is physical, that is the non-essential, because it can be divided, it can be dissected, it can be reduced. And then the essential, the metaphysical, and the separation of these substances occurs at the death of the non-essential. That's Ecclesiastes 12, 1 through 7. So when the body dies, there's a separation between these two. Non, they're essentially non-compatible. There's no, there's, no, there's no characteristics that the two have that are joined. They're completely, totally different. Again, diametrically in opposition. And they separate at the death of the non-essential. The beingness is completely unaffected, as you know. We call this now the intermediate state. Some people call it the transitionary state. And all of that, and I know you've heard it before, but I have to say it especially to those who can't find us on Facebook. That's a joke. Apparently no one can find us on Facebook. Oh, we got it working? Okay, so somebody can find us on it? Are they still angry at us? Okay. How much do we pay them? Uh, that, that's uh, oh, okay. So we paid her a lot. Okay. Anyway. 
All of this that I've just thrown at you is to present the position that the body is unique because the body is unique. Psalm 139.14. It's distinct. You know this from watching forensic files. There is no other body that is the same as your body. None. Identical twins, they share a significant amount of similar DNA, but they're not identical. There's genetic variability in identical twins. And, of course, there's also, obviously, consciousness that is greatly different. They don't think alike. They pretend to think alike, but they really don't. What, then, is the implication of all of us and animals that have an absolute individuality with regard to our physical body? There's spiritual implications here. There's theological implications. There's philosophical implications to that being true. And now we're back to John Bell. Information cannot be destroyed. Because it cannot be destroyed, then our essential component is likewise an absolute individuality. Our consciousness, our mind, our soul is the only one of its kind. I'm sorry. Let me say I'm sorry to those who believe in reincarnation at this point. I'm not really sorry. Again, fake sorry. Now, you should be made aware that the ancient theological philosophers concluded that our individualized body and our mind, our soul, our consciousness must be coordinated. In other words, they have to be paired, they have to be matched, they have to be reunited, therefore, with one another. No other soul can be installed in your body but your soul. Sorry about science fiction, Star Trek, all the other nonsense things that say, I can take your soul out, I can separate it from the body, I can make a new body, I can transport all of this and re-put it all together. No. What, what do they call that in Star Trek? I did a lecture on it a little bit. Trans, transporter. Transportation is impossible. Because when you transport somebody, did you really have that somebody or did you recreate somebody? So the first, so the first Kirk die, every time Kirk is transported, he dies and another Kirk is put in his place. That's essentially where you end up. Okay, enough of that. Your body is individualized and therefore your mind and your soul and your consciousness is individualized. There is none like either one of those anywhere. There never will be except for you. You're the only you that can be you and there is no other you. And so you have an individualized consciousness and you have an individualized body. And DNA has proved the physical. And again, no other soul can take the place of your body. And I listen, I know you're going to say, what about demon possession? Co- collaborative cohabitation is what that is. And that we'll deal with that later. I've got the Satan man again, but then we'll deal with that later. No time for today. For today... Aristotle proposed that the form of the soul, 1 Samuel 28, 12 through 20, is the form of the soul. And, and 1 Samuel 28 through 20 contains the fatted calf. And you know that that's the fatted calf symbol that shows up again in the parable of Luke 15 through 27. That fatted calf symbol is incredibly important. It also attaches to the golden calf. You get all the calves, put them together, and figure out what it all means. And uh, I also got the, the Lazarus prophecy, John 11, Luke 16, 22 through 23, that reveals the form of the essential substance, the intermediate state, exists 
There's a form to it. We can see it. It can be seen. Saul saw the intermediate state form of Samuel. And the witch of Endor saw the intermediate state form of Samuel. Not his body, but the form is how it's described. The intermediate state has a structure. 2 Kings 6, 16-17, Revelation 11, 19, Revelation 12, 7-12, Hebrews 8, 1-6. There's a form or a structure in the intermediate state. What is that form and structure made of? Somehow it is compatible with the form, the consciousness, the mind, the essential substance of the body that we have. Because you can feel the form you can, the form can feel the, the structure. The form can taste. The form can, is thirsty. The taste, it can see. It can talk. Tremendous amount of capability of the intermediate state. Okay, anyway, Aristotle resolved that the form of the soul, the mind, the consciousness was that of the body. So in other words, he's saying that Samuel's form and Samuel's body look the same. That's what he said. That's Aristotle. And the reasoning that the soul is therefore designed to fit the body, or thus operate the body efficiently, means that this has to be true. In other words, the only efficient operating presence that is in your body has to be the, the, the form that looks like your body. Does that make sense? Half of you are asleep, the other half are looking at me like I'm crazy. Why does that happen every Sunday? I can't, I can't get that out. Well, not every, every other Sunday because we're coming back on the 19th of March. And again, allow me to apologize to the advocates of reincarnation. And hopefully my fake sincerity will be found sufficient for them. I doubt it. So why am I bringing, reprising this subject when I've covered it for almost to the point of fatigue? to the suffering Presidian audience. You've heard me do this for a long, long time. How does it apply to the super-deterministic predestinational ideology? Well, Pinky, I have a plan to take over the world. Free will does not reside in the brain. The brain is physical. Free will is not a physical substance. It cannot reside in the brain in the sense of being physically attached to the brain. Free will is in, the brain is made of divisible matter. Free will is inherent in the essential substance. So when God put free will inside of you, he did not put it in physically, he put it in spiritually. The brain is composed of particle matter, Ecclesiastes 3, Ecclesiastes 12, and goes to dust. The free will, the essential substance, the life force, the breath of the spirit of life, the breath of the Spirit of life from God, John 4, 23 and 27, Genesis 2, 7. That is what has the free will in it. And failing to recognize the source and the composition and the construction of the Spirit of life and its endowment, the facility, if you will, the attributes, the, the most significant is the free will. And you have to have free will in order to have existence. I've gone through that lecture and discussion many, many times. If I have existence that does not have free will, is that a musical? Is that? Am I supposed to do something now? You're sure? Because that sounded cool. It sounded important. 
somebody is validating my position and right there I got some kind of musical, yeah. Right at this point of this very important emphatic position, I get some music that can't be, what are the probabilities? Okay. Repeating this, if you fail to recognize the source and the composition and the construction of the spirit of life and all that it brings, it is a complicated thing. It doesn't just make the body move. It has intelligence. It has existence. It has free will in it. If you don't know that, if you don't even consider it, and again, the most significant of the attributes of the facility of the, of the form of the soul is free will. And failure to perceive that, this, is the path towards doctrinal catastrophe. And when I question an absolutist with respect to free will existence, specifically from, I'll say, from where does free will originate? Where is free will at? I usually receive an answer along the lines that free will doesn't exist. It's an illusion. Your question is not valid. You have a misappropriation of logic here. I respond to that by saying that existence requires free will, as does intelligence. You can't have either one without will. Otherwise, God has lied. Exodus 17, 1-7, Numbers uh, 23-6, and Genesis 3-4. The atheist is quite content to declare God to be an evil psychopathic murderer. He does it all the time. They call him a sociopath because he causes what? Earthquakes. He causes murder. He causes war. He causes everything because he's an, the absolutist. The atheist will seize the absolutist position that God is in con- complete, total control of every minute detail. And so, therefore, he's an evil psychopathic murderer. That, again, that's Exodus 7, 17, 1 through 7. The extreme Calvinist, well, what? What will he do when the atheist says that, the, that God is an evil psychopathic murderer? What will the extreme Calvinist do? He will concede that God is the author of, of evil. Absolutely, he'll agree. He'll say that God is the one who decreed all evil and all death and all murder and all evil. Again, did I say evil? He's the, or, he's the origin of evil. That's what they say. So ultimately, the atheist and the militant Calvinist, they occupy the exact same position. You should be concerned. You really should be concerned. And that's my definition of doctrinal catastrophe when you are agreeing with an atheist that says that God is a psychopathic, sociopathic, murdering fiend. Then you are in doctrinal catastrophe. The point for today, say it with me, Yea, a point. Note that at least two out of the four, which half of the audience, now Laurie will contend that she's in the audience too, so it's really 40% of the audience. But she probably went. Uh, she probably, I doubt, oh, there's the music again, that's twice. Now that cannot be coincidental. That's, that's, I'm, be, I'm being validated by this. I mean, finally. Okay, the point for today, say with me, yeah, a point is to weld. I'm trying to get you to weld and glue and plaster and paste and solder and braze and cement the truth that free will was given by God within his breath of the spirit of life. That's where it comes from. That's where it's at. That's why I know you have it. 
Genesis 7.22 Spirit of life. Did I say life? I hope I said life enough. Life, life, life. This is obvious. This is why God says, Christ says, I am the life, John 11.25. God has free will. He freely, He gives freely all things, Roman 8.32. What comprises all things? Do you think that free will belongs in all things? If He left free will out, He didn't give us free will, did He give us all things? Romans 8.32 Consider the doctrinal catastrophe of asserting that God fundamentally created artificial intelligence, which is a contradiction. There's no such thing as artificial intelligence. Intelligence cannot be artificial. And he, but if you say that he did give us this fake intelligence, this fake free will, he's eliminating the capacity to love, for example. He's eliminating the experience of joy and gladness and hope. Because you can't have that if you don't have true intelligence or true existence or true free will. You can't have any of that. It's all plastic, fake, or it's some kind of counterfeit. It's not real. And again, that's Psalm 51, 7 through 8, Psalm 51, 12, and Psalm 4, 7. He has put gladness in the heart of mankind. What is joy and gladness? How do you get it? How do you think it? How do you express it? How do you feel it? What is necessary to have that? The obvious answer, again, is still obvious. Can love, joy, gladness be accomplished or felt without free will? What is the answer again? And the answer, no. It can't. So every Bible verse in the Bible that says God has freely given us joy and love and gladness, all of those say that you have to have free will. Okay. How am I doing for time? Fifteen minutes? I was speaking fast on purpose. Well, I've only got 25 minutes to go. Everyone's still awake. Let the record show. It's amazing. Okay, if the ancients, the Greek philosophers, primarily along with Descartes, were and are accurate that the disembodied consciousness at the death of the non-essential body, the laser in the non-essential meaning, the body is secondary at best and, and thus is completely unable to affect the continuity of your soul, of the essential substance. It cannot affect the continuity. They're two different materials. One is divisible, one is never divisible. The form looks like the body, but it is not the body. Then, if that's true, then the essential substance will continue. That means you, the person, yourself, you your memory, your everything remains intact, requiring only the source of energy to fully function because our body provides energy, right? So something has to replace that energy source. John 8, 12, 11, 25, Genesis 1, 3. That's where Christ says, I am the source of life energy. I keep you alive. And I don't, I, I don't keep your body alive. I keep you alive. Notice how I said that. That's how he says it. The scriptures unequivocally declare this to be the truth. So next we have a whole bunch of why questions. Why does Jesus God insist on resurrecting the dead bodies? John eleven twenty five. Because that's what he does. He wants to resurrect the bodies. Why? You should be able to answer that. I gave you the answer already. Raise your hand if you can answer it. Oh, dear. Oh, good point. Never raise your hand at Cliff sign. Excellent point. Sorry, I lost my way there for a second. Why not 
what's the alternative? Back to, back to the firing squad scenario, right? There's always a cause, there's always something to evaluate. Why not, why doesn't he just simply annihilate all the information that was in the body and create, recreate bodies from the information that does not exist? Does that sound like James Kirk being transported? Okay. Once again, I, the adorable HTRP, I answered the question within the question. Let me repeat it. Why not simply annihilate all of the information that was the body and create, recreate bodies from information that does not exist? The answer to the question is in the question. First, because the infinite, omniscient, complete God who has by definition of omniscience analyzed and calculated every single variable, Therefore, there is only one way to defeat death, and that one perfect way, because he gets all the variables out, anything that doesn't work has to be removed until he gets to the best possible solution. And the only way, he says, to defeat death, and that one perfect way is to locate and gather all of the information of the dead bodies and resurrect them. That's the only thing that works, because his omniscience demands that that be true, and his timelessness and the fact that he is complete. Obviously, God will not annihilate. He will not recreate. So the question is hopelessly wrong on purpose because I'm a professional. Don't you ever ask this question. God will not annihilate. He will not recreate. Existence will not be corrupted because I'm going to corrupt existence if I do this. If I recreate, if I eliminate, I annihilate. Ask then, why not? Why did Moses suggest it was possible in the mysterious dramatic theodicy that was the interchange of Exodus 32? Specifically Exodus 32, 9 through 10. Because when you read that and you'll say, wait a minute. You said God would not annihilate. He would not uh, completely erase someone. He won't do it. But yet it looks like he's trying to say that in, in Exodus 32, 9. Through ten, Moses and the Lord were addressing this principle that says creation ended at Genesis 1.31 on the sixth day. If you haven't heard me say that, creation ended on the sixth day, Genesis 1.31. So there is no more creation. The only thing that there is that's going to be spectacular as equal to creation will be resurrection. So I have two un- incredible, unimaginable events. One is the creation. The other is the resurrection. We are in the resurrection phase of the structure that God put together. So there is no more creation, so there's only resurrection, and it cannot be denied that Moses and Abraham had analogous discussions with God. In other words, their their discussions were the same. Genesis 18 equals Exodus 32, if you want to think of it that way. Abraham is is advocating for mercy to prevail over judgment in the midst of the great evil of Sodom. And what does he do? He says if there's there's 50, if there's, you know, he rattles it down. If somebody that's righteous, you can't kill them all. You've got to save the righteous. Moses, correspondingly, he's pleading for Israel to be spared, though they have sacrificed children to the golden calf. If you didn't know that, now you do. They were killing children. That is why God went, I can't handle this. If you thought that they were just being weird, no. God's response does not fit weird. Otherwise, I would be in a lot of trouble. They're sacrificing children to the golden calf. It says so in my view, Exodus 32.8, Leviticus 18.21. They did the same thing with the golden calf that they do with Moloch. And God does not want that to happen. 
And Abraham says it, uh, in Genesis 18, shall not the judge of all the earth do right, Genesis 18.25. And Moses reminds God of Genesis 15.7 and 15.18, you said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens, Exodus 32.13 then, and Genesis 18.25 are all fitting together. I have two people in Scripture that are in this conversation with God Himself. And they have the same conversation. Exodus 32, 13-14 then is a repeat of Genesis 18, 32-33. I will not destroy it for the sake of ten. That's what He said. And then it says, So the Lord went His own way. And now you should assign that and connect that to, So the Lord relented from harm. One is Sodom, so the Lord went his own way. The other one is so the Lord relented from harm. That's Exodus 32. So you see it's happened twice in the Bible. Once with Abraham, once with Moses. Exodus 32, 7-14 is Moses in the role of Christ, the mediator. He says that will happen. Uh, Deuteronomy 18:15. What I have done, Christ will do at a much higher level, but you will see me, what I have done, in what Christ does. Three, that's a triunity. How many more times is it going to happen before we decide it's not a good thing? (laughs) Okay. So Moses is in the role of the mediator, who is Christ. So also is Abraham in the role of the mediator, Genesis 18, Deuteronomy 18, 15, 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6, Hebrews 12, 24, 9, 15, 8, 6 talks about Christ being the intercessor and the mediator. And so we have this mediation of Moses and Abraham. Eventually, as one studies this, you'll discover Genesis 15. Genesis 15 is sitting right on top of all of this. Matthew 26, 39. John 12, 27. Matthew 26, 42. The mystery of the cup. where Christ says, take this cup. I don't want the cup because Christ is mediating there. So Moses and Abraham are doing what Christ does in, in Matthew 26, 39. In portrait. In type. They obviously cannot do that. We have the, This is the second Peter 3.9. Christ is not wishing that any should perish. So he says, take this cup. But for today, let's just consider Exodus 32.10 where the judge of all things, John 5.22 says, to the mediator, second Peter 3.9, Deuteronomy 18.15, let me alone. That's what he says. This is what God says to Moses at Deuteronomy, or Exodus 32.10. Let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and that I may consume them and I will make you, Moses, a great nation. That looks like he's eliminating all of Israel, destroying them, and going to start over again, recreate. But you know he can't or he won't because he's established the principle of 131 Genesis. I'm sorry, yeah, 131. Essentially, Abraham is to be replaced with Moses because that's what Moses says to him. You promised Abraham, you know. Descendants like the stars. So you can't do this. And he also brings up the fact that uh, the Egyptians accused God of taking Israel out to the wilderness to murder them all, which is Satan's lie, right? Genesis 3-4. But Moses, the high priest mediator, pleads with the judge who hates those who rush to shed innocent blood. Proverbs 6.17. And you got Psalm 5.6. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. So that you know had to be happening here. 
at Exodus 32. And the intercessor reminds the omniscient judge of the Abrahamic covenant that is forever, Genesis 15, and is unconditional. And obviously what we're seeing here is this dramatic theodicy being played out because he cannot show us what he is and how he thinks because we're finite. He's infinite, so he gives us these finite conditional elements that we are to extrapolate from. And obviously this is a triune God giving sinful man, mankind a glimpse into the dilemma, the solution to this problem of evil and sin and death. The point, wow, another point. How many is that? There's got to be at least one. The point here is to expose the matter of the contention, justice colliding with love, mercy, and to publish and to announce the solution that is Christ. He is the arbitrator. However, for today, just note that annihilationism is never going to be an alternative. Exodus 32, Genesis 18, both testify that annihilationism is, is eliminated. God will not annihilate. He will not recreate. That's what it's teaching you. So there's no possibility of that. Thus, it solves the questions of the new city of Jerusalem in the lake of fire, Matthew 25:41 and Revelation 21. And what questions is that, you might ask? Grasshopper. Well, that, those questions is, when did Satan fall? Uh, when was the lake of fire in the new city of Jerusalem made? Because they had to be made before when? Before the end of the sixth day. Before Genesis 1.31. But after Ezekiel 28.16 and Psalm 10.6 and Psalm 10.13, when did those occur? That's Satan where he says, I will never be held into account. I will never face adversity. I'll never be judged. So it had to happen after that, but before something. Before Genesis 1.31 and after Ezekiel 28.16 and, and Psalm 10.6 and 10.13. Anyway, now you know why he resurrects, don't you? Because of the form. Psalm 139.16. The breath of life must be matched. Well, let me say this. Psalm 139.16 is layered. That's where he said, where he says, uh, David says to God, you knew me before you formed me. Oh, isn't that interesting? It's far more complicated than the, the typical uh, commentation describes. So think about that whenever you read Psalm 139.16. The breath of life must be matched with the body. Your breath of life is by itself completely individualized. Your body is by itself completely individualized. And they have to be matched together. They have been designed. If you want to think of it this way, lock and key, the form, the essential, your essential position, or your essential structure, substance, is only able to enliven the body with which it was paired. That's how it works. And notice that it's your two. All these twos in the Bible. You're a two. And your body will come back and it will have the same spirit of life and breath. All your memories, everything. He'll put them back together again at the resurrection. But he changes the body, doesn't he? He He restores it to the way he wanted it to be. And it's going to be a whole lot better looking than I am. We'll be able to look in mirrors again. It'll be amazing. 
we'll go, wow, that's not so bad. Instead of, oh my God. Anyway. I am saying that there is no generic breath of the spirit of life. As there is no universal bodies. Each body is utterly distinct and unique. And again, DNA is attesting that to be true more so every day, almost completely out of time now. So therefore, I'm not going to do Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. If you tuned in to see, well, he's going to do Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. That's going to have to be deferred. Oops, i got less than a second to go. I need to substitute um, this issue really fast. Why doesn't God allow us to see the intermediate state? Why? Why this veil, this great divide, the afar off, 2 Kings 6, 16 through 17, Hebrews 8, 1 through 6? Why didn't he let us see it? I asked that question before. Obviously, I am suggesting, albeit surreptitiously, that the free will of mankind is hovering over that question I just asked you. He doesn't let us see it because of what? Free will. So if you're a Calvinist and you believe that we can see the intermediate state, then you're right. If you believe we can't see the intermediate state, then you're wrong. Because the reason you can't see the intermediate state is because of free will. I will devote some time to that. Free will is hovering over this question. Feel free to devote your time to the answer, why it is the answer. Finally for now, finally, you made it. It's kind of like a marathon, isn't it? You will yeah, make him stop. You will eventually confront the position that human and animal and angelic free will diminishes the sovereignty of God. You'll see it all the time. Because they, the mysterious they, they're going to argue unless God determines every thought, every action, unless he knows and, and, and rotates and spins and vibrates and oscillates every particle in the universe, unless he does everything by himself, uh, his power is lessened and therefore his omniscience omniscience nullified, his omnipotence as well, if we have free will. In other words, his total control is eliminated because our free will eliminates his total control. Does that make sense? That's the argument. You'll see it all the time. And this is going to end up, that argument is going to end up into the evidence of rebellion in Scripture. Have you read the Bible? I don't know if you've read the Bible. I mean, hopefully you have. Have you ever come across rebellion in the Bible? Do angels and mankind rebel against God? Does the Bible teach this, duh? This, duh, being one word? I could argue, and I do, that the whole of Genesis 1 through 3 certainly exposes rebellion as its main point. That's the point, yea, a point. Yea, a main point. And the salvific plan, purpose of God is to do what to the rebellion? That's right. Save it. Redeem it. Did Satan rebel? Yeah. Rebellion is clearly a theme of Scripture. Is it possible? Well, I say it this way. Obviously, that's four. Good grief. People think that we're, that I'm incompetent, but I'm, I'm now, beginning to agree with them. Obviously, rebellion has to be permitted, doesn't it? He permits it. Why? He permits it because of the essential substance, not the body. Can God balance his sovereignty and our free will? Yes, he can. 
That's what he does. That's the plan. Sorry to take so long.